This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we visit a remarkable public garden in California during California Native Plant Week. The nature gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County are testament to just how much one garden can do, where once a parking lot sat. Stay with us. The landscape architect and museum staff collaborated very deeply on the original planting uh, palette for the entire garden. It was master planned, and every plant that was chosen to be a part of this garden was chosen for a contribution that it would make to providing habitat. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this, our fifth, but not quite final, listen for more information towards the end of this episode, in our five-part series on our gardens as habitat and we gardeners as powerful land stewards and biodiversity protectors, we visit a remarkable public garden in California. It's California Native Plant Week. The nature gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County are testament to just how much one garden can do to turn back time and help restore habitat, even in downtown L.A., where once a parking lot sat barren and overheated. We're joined today by native plant expert Carol Bornstein, director of the nature gardens, and by Leela Higgins, Senior Manager of Community Science there. With hard data collected over the last seven years and huge hearts for this work, they bring us up to speed on what the nature gardens and the habitat they provide can offer to us all. Carol and Leela join us today with the help of audio producer Joanna Clay from the nature gardens. Welcome, Carol and Leela. Hello. Hi. I'd love to have you both start by re- restating your, your job title and tell us what that actually means in your working life day to day. Let's start with you, Carol. Well, I'm the director of the Nature Gardens here at the museum. I also oversee the, um, the museum's live animal program. So I jokingly like to tell people that I'm responsible for the living things here at the museum, as opposed to all the the dead specimens that we have in in our collections. There's no typical day, really, but um, a fair amount of time will be spent out in the garden, um, communicating with uh, our head gardener and some of the other members of the garden team, just um, addressing what's going on with the, the the plants in the in the collection itself. Um, interacting with many other staff um, with regard to how the the gardens are being used uh, for educational purposes, occasionally for some of the research work, just all sorts of different collaborations that revolve and spin off of what's happening out in the gardens. Yeah. What about you, Leela? Hi. So I'm the Senior Manager of Community Science, which some people uh, refer to as citizen science. Uh, About a year ago, we changed the name. Not everyone is a citizen uh, who we want to participate. 
I'm personally not a citizen of the United States. And we also were approached by the community and asked to change the name. And so that that's in the rationale there. But the definition is the same, regardless of whether you call it community science like we do or citizen science. And it's getting the general public involved in answering real research questions. And our real research questions are what's going on with nature here in Los Angeles? And that's not just in the garden, but all over the L.A., Southern California region. But now that we have the garden, it's an amazing field research site for both our scientists. I work in research and collections. I have a degree in entomology, so insects are, are my jam. But I love, I realized that I wasn't going to be a hard science researcher. I realized I needed to communicate science to people. And that's what gave me true joy and getting to help build this garden here at the museum. It's just so amazing coming into work and seeing kids around the pond, like literally getting their feet wet following and chasing a butterfly, getting to see birds up close, or them crawling through the wormhole in the get dirty zone. It's it's something that gives me like tingles every day. Yeah. Yeah. It is a it is an incredible garden. Carol, will you describe the scope of these gardens that we're we are talking about and a little bit about their history? How big are they? When were they first put in? Why were they put in? Well, so the gardens are roughly three and a half acres, and they took the place of a couple of parking lots and some rather mundane landscaping, a fair amount of lawn, and not a, not a whole lot else. And the idea came um, about during the process of doing some major uh, renovation to the, the museum itself, earthquake retrofitting the old um, historic wing and some of the uh, galleries throughout the museum. And I wasn't here at the time. Leela can speak to this in perhaps more detail. But the, the idea was to take the museum's work, its research work, and its educational programming outdoors on our own property and to use uh, the space, the outdoor space, as part of our, our mission-based work. So becoming a museum of nature and natural history the museum staff, um, they developed a team of, of biologists and educators, and that's where Leela came in, um, wearing both hats at the time, mm-hmm. and worked with Mia Laren Associates, a local landscape architectural firm, to develop the concept for the gardens and to um, help to construct them. And the goals were, were multiple. Um, they wanted to build something that could be used as a field site for conducting research also for many um, educational program opportunities, for nature play, because so many people who live in Los Angeles uh, don't have the opportunity to have some type of connection with the, the outdoors. They, they don't get to the beach or they don't go to the mountains. Their schoolyards may be more asphalt than anything else. And there was a very strong belief that we needed to provide some opportunities, whether it was a first touch for nature or giving people a chance to just move along that continuum and become better aware of and more connected with the nature that is around them. And also to serve as a demonstration garden of what they might be able to do in their own space. And last but certainly not least, to create habitat for wildlife in this urban setting. Leela, do you want to add something to that? Well, so I've been at the museum 10 years and... When I first got here, I heard about this project and I was like, oh my gosh, how can I start working on that? 
I have a, a master's degree in environmental education, which was paired with my entomology undergrad degree, and was like, this is going to be a really powerful space for many of the reasons Carol outlined. And as a person who grew up on a farm in England and got to run around playing in hollow trees and pretending to be a badger and chasing <laughs> butterflies down a country lane, I felt really, really compelled to help make a space where people could have experiences like that here in Los Angeles, safe, natural, outdoor spaces where parents could bring their kids and kind of the parents could sit down and relax and kids could get their hands dirty in compost and climb on a tree stump and chase butterflies maybe okay maybe they also can pretend to be badgers uh but american badges not european badges <laughs> <laughs> but i got to work on that like literally i had started in december of 2008 and then halfway through 2009 I got assigned to the Nature Gardens project, working with the head of exhibits at the time, Karen Wise, and found myself as the most junior person in the room with the president of the museum and the um, head of our construction company, listening to the pitches from all the different landscape firms that were going to work, that possibly wanted to work with us. And then we selected Mir Lair and Associates, and I was just like, how am I in this space? And And then getting to, again, see the whole completion and cycle, and then hiring on Carol, and then now having a, like a full complement of garden staff and seeing kids and adults out in that space. It's, it's kind of just like a magical thing. It is a magical thing. And I want to go back to Carol for just a second before we get into more of the science being done there. Carol, as really one of the premier native plant experts in California, especially in a public garden space. Your whole career has been dedicated to, to this kind of work. Will you describe for people the kind of range of plants, both in plant types and maybe how many species you have and, and just like what, what do we mean when we say we're, we're planting for habitat? Give us some tangible names and faces to that. Well, first I'll just start by saying that the the gardens are not an entirely California native composition. There are exotic plants here, although most of what people see when they come was part of the um, overall planting design. Very, very little of what remained prior to the groundbreaking is on the property. But there are some exotic species, and those reflect part of the fabric of the urban landscape that, that exists throughout Los Angeles. And that was intentional, to make it be accessible in a visual way, and that people could um, relate to some of the plants that were already here, that they do see around the city. But I'd say about two-thirds are California native plants, and they range from um, local native species, uh, plants that you might find along the natural reaches of the Los Angeles or the San Gabriel Rivers, so riparian vegetation such as um, arroyo willow, the California sycamore, oak woodland. Primarily, we, would, we have coast live oak, but we also have a few species of other native oaks uh, on the property. Lots of toyon, which is the official shrub, the official native plant of Los Angeles um, that absolutely thrives in this garden. Several different kinds of ceanothus and manzanitas and coffee berry and um, currants and gooseberries. 
So there's a quite a, an a extensive array of woody plants, but we also have a lot of native grasses, perennials. There's even um, an aquatic component because we have an, a naturalistic pond that is populated entirely with California native plants. And the pollinator meadow, actually we have two pollinator gardens, one that is exclusively California natives, a mosaic of grasses and annual and perennial wildflowers with a few shrubs for uh, structure, year-round structure. But we also have an, a, a mixed pollinator garden that is a more formal in presentation to appeal to people who might not like you know, the, the less tidy uh, look that the, the meadow uh, presents. In addition to all of that, there's also uh, an edible garden that does in fact have some California native plants mixed in, partly for their insectary benefits, but also because some of our native plants definitely have an edible component to them. That's a kind of a general overview. Yeah. And there's roughly 600 or so different species and cultivars in the garden, not including the edible plants and the annual wildflowers. So for the yeah. fairly small size, there's a lot of uh, plant diversity. A lot of impact. When I was last there, I think the the wildflower meadow mosaic area you were referring to was just getting started. And mm -hmm. um, with this great bloom year going on, can you describe that a little bit for us? Sure. Um, yes, it's in bloom. Um, it's, it's probably the most dynamic part of all of the nature gardens other than the changing annual beds in the edible garden. Because of the composition, um, the, the diversity of plants that are there, and the fact that it has, it has definitely evolved since we planted it. It was the, the last section of the garden to be installed. The meadow originally had a lot more annual wildflower component to it, and over time, the bunch grasses have naturalized and taken up more of the real estate. So there are probably, there's less of the, the ground plane of annuals, but there are more of some of the other plants that we planted, such as the desert apricot and the Indian mallow and the annual sunflower. Some things have just been super, super happy in that location, and we have let a lot of things just evolve on their own, trying to take, uh, to some degree, a bit of a hands-off approach and let things find their place but at the same time, we are we are still managing it. Just in that description alone, where you have the, you know, really iconic canopy trees of the sycamore and the oaks there, and all the way down to the to the native bunch grasses, there is this beautiful and wholly representative um, plant communities there which would allow for a lot of year-round observation and information collection. So I'm going to move to you, Leela, and have you talk a little bit about the different ways that you are incorporating both community science and hard science with all of that uh, opportunity throughout the year. Again, we were very excited about this garden opening. And even before it opened, we started surveying the space with our scientific staff. We had this group that we called the Habitat Team. And I was one of the lead content educators on that team, but also had a science background. So was able to kind of 
work with and and kind of communicate across the science to the education side of things. And we have been doing a lot of field research out in this space. So we have our entomologists out there putting up a malaise trap that's been up since the garden has opened. And a malaise trap, for those of you don't know, who don't know, it's like almost like a tent, but for insects that fly through the environment and they get caught on the piece of netting that's there and then they are attracted to flying up to try and get away. They fly upwards and then they get caught in this jar which is filled with alcohol and yes they do perish but we take killing things very seriously here and we're only doing it to to help our understanding of the planet and and to hopefully make the planet and uh, our environment especially here in Los Angeles better for humans and for wildlife. So we found hundreds and hundreds of insect species in the garden through that malaise trapping project and our entomological staff and volunteers sorting through those insects inside of our nature lab exhibit so the public can come in throughout the week and the weekends and get to see volunteers and work-study students from USC sorting through those insects and we have a microscope set up so they can see them up close and see some of these life forms that are flying around in possibly even their own backyards, but are something that are so small and so tiny that people don't get to see. So we've had 305 species of insects um, observed in the nature gardens through this entomological survey. To kind of split that up, that's nine species of dragonflies and damselflies, which mostly are relying on the pond, because dragonflies and damselflies lay their eggs inside of water, and so their babies live underwater. So putting in that water source really helps to increase the biodiversity um, in relation to the dragonflies and damselflies. We have 14 species of butterflies that have been found in the garden, 19 species of flower flies, also known as uh, hoverflies. Um, they are pollinators. 45 species of scuttled flies. So these are in the true fly group. They're also known as humpbacked flies because they have this very large hump behind their head. Um, and then... 16 species, more than 16 species of bees, and then 34 species of beetles, which beetles are my favorite order of insects, so very excited to see so many of those in our nature gardens. And then beyond the insects, we've had four species of reptiles and amphibians found. There was a turtle dumped in the pond. There was a American bullfrog dumped in the pond. So, you know, those are species that we've seen, but we're not necessarily very excited about uh, having them in, in the space. They are, again, invasive species that have wrought havoc around the world. But then we have two species of lizards that have shown up, and there were not really lizards in the space before the gardens were built. 17 species of mammals, 10 species of snails and slugs, and 107 bird species are, um, yeah, it's amazing, are... Uh, one of our ornithologists here at the museum, uh, Kimball Garrett, he has lived in Los Angeles his whole life. He grew up playing in the Hollywood Hills, following birds around, and he scored a job here at the museum and has been here over 30 years. And since the gardens opened, he has been going out weekly and he's done 279 bird surveys. He's seen 22,615 individual <laughs> birds, which represent 107 species. Wow. I wanted to just add something about all these creatures. None of that wildlife was intentionally brought into the garden. There's only there's only one um, animal that we 
intentionally introduced, and that was um, the Arroyo chub, which is a native fish that we actually had to secure a permit in order to release it in the pond. And it has been so happy that the initial seeding of maybe 25 to 50 or so fish has now turned into many hundreds, if not thousands of fish. But everything else, you know, that we have been documenting has arrived on its own accord. Although, as Leela did say, a couple things apparently were um, deposited in the pond that (laughs) that we pretty immediately removed. (laughs) Carol Bornstein is director and Leela Higgins, the senior manager of community science, both at the Nature Gardens of the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in downtown L.A., The three-and-a-half-acre garden was conceived and planted in what was mostly asphalt parking lot. The Natural History Museum is L.A.'s oldest museum building and the present-day anchor of an emerging cultural, educational, and entertainment hub in Exposition Park. Natural History Museum visitors are awed by extraordinary specimens and the stories behind them. In addition to sharing the history of the planet, the Natural History Museum also explores a more local transformation. The Outdoor Nature Gardens and the Nature Lab look at how environment and people, past and present, interact in L.A., The unifying theme in these indoor and outdoor experiences is the interplay of nature and culture in Los Angeles and the world. The gardens put living nature into the life and science of this historic natural history museum. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Hey, I've had so many wonderful comments and notes about the impression this Habitat series has made on all of you, and me too, how it's opened your thinking and inspired your own gardening at this time of year in particular. You'll hear more about this at the end of this episode, but I just couldn't help myself. I added one more episode to what was supposed to be a series of five. It was too hard to stop because in reality, All gardens are about habitat, right? They're habitat for us, for our sanity, for our wildlife and our plants, and, well, engaging in life more fully and richly on all levels. It's because of you donors out there that I was able to put my head around curating such a series and the forethought, planning, scheduling, and communicating this involves – So thank you to each and every one of you who showed up as donors as well as listeners. We have a lot of new ideas here at Cultivating Place, and we need listener support to help us out. If you want to be the gardener to our garden, please consider making a tax-deductible donation by clicking on the link that says support in the upper right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. While most people give us sustaining donations of $20 a month, any size or one-time gift goes a long way to make these important conversations possible. Thank you. Now, back to our conversation with Carol Bornstein and Leela Higgins of the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County.
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Carol Bornstein and Leela Higgins of the Habitat Intense Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in downtown L.A. So that was one of my questions. When when you referred to the bullfrog and the turtles being dumped, these are non-native species that somebody came and just released without permission into the environment. The turtle happened during construction. Uh, we did have a camera trap on the pond at the time. Camera trapping is something else that we, we do in the garden to help to collect data. And we saw some construction boots coming in the frame. And then the next day, a turtle was in the pond. So it was a red-eared slider. It's on the top 100 species list of invasive species that is on the IUCN red list. We um, had some of our live animal staff oversee the, the removal of that turtle and rehome it. I want to go back to all of these wonderful numbers of bugs you were giving. These three and a half acres of gardens went into a, a place that was basically just asphalt. It was just paved over and more more or less. And then these gardens come in. You've been, uh, what I understood from what you said is you've been collecting this data on um, the insect and other life in the gardens for all of these years or a great many of them since the garden was planted. We're hearing all the time right now about how pressured our insect life is in the world, and it's decreasing numbers. We don't have data from before the garden was there, but in theory, there clearly weren't, you know, damselflies and dragonflies because there was not water. So are you seeing trends of upward and downward? Are you, what what are you seeing there and what does it say to you? Um, so the malaise trap that I was talking about um, is one of, well, that was originally in the first iteration of this research project, which is called BioScan, which stands for Biodiversity, Science, City, and Nature, um, which is run by our entomological staff here and Dr. Brian Brown, our entomologist. He's a fly specialist. And so that malaise trap in our nature gardens was one of 30 that was all over the city of Los Angeles. And through those traps, they discovered 43 species of, of these flies that are brand new to science. Not new to Los Angeles, but brand new. No scientists knew that they had existed on the planet until our researchers looked at them and identified them. Wow. Yeah, so this is real science happening. And then two other flies that he looked at in that sample, one had never before been found in Los Angeles. It had only been known to exist in Europe. And third one, also never before found in LA, only known from the east and west coasts of Africa. Three scientific discoveries, one new species, and then two range expansions. And what we found to date is they're working on publishing a lot of this data, but um, so I don't want to, you know, preempt them on that. But what Carol and I and other people have been saying, plant native plants, plant native plants and or climate appropriate plants, and you will increase biodiversity in your space. I think for gardeners, maybe our greatest joy in life is <laughs> this idea of making gardens that welcome all of these creatures, even in a small space, and and being able to make that difference just feels so 
hugely helpful to me and and hopeful to me, given what we are seeing worldwide in terms of declines of these creatures that we we rely on them for everything. And we we harm them at our own peril. So with that in mind, I want to move back to Carol and you know, we we talk about habitat in our gardens very generally, but you can give us some really I think beautiful specifics perhaps on ways that you have as a plant person thought about the habitat needs of these, you know, many different species and said, you know, maybe this this is their larval food maybe i'll plant this this is their you know this would be great nesting material for for hummingbirds maybe i'll plant this has there been a kind of intentional planning for the support of the different life stages of some of these creatures i mean i think the 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 most common one we hear about all the time of course is the milkweed and, and the monarch or um you know for us the pipe vine and the aristolochia with the pipevine swallowtail butterflies. Have you have there been other examples like that that you can share with us wherein you think that long term for what your plants and your faunal relationships are are doing together? Well, the the short answer is yes that there, it, it was definitely intentional. The team that both Leela and I mentioned of the landscape architect and museum staff collaborated very deeply on the original planting uh, palette for the entire garden. It was master planned. And every plant that was chosen to be a part of this garden was chosen for it. What a contribution that it would make to providing habitat also to be compatible with our Mediterranean climate here in Los Angeles and to be able to survive on fairly low water over its lifespan. Not everything has worked for one reason or another because gardens, of course, are grand experiments and and things don't, number one, live necessarily live forever. And we're constantly editing and changing, trying to honor the original intentions. And when new plants are brought into the garden, they do need to pass muster with that same goal in mind to provide a, either a food source, whether it's through the flowers or the fruits or nesting material or shelter. As far as specifics, uh, well, there's a, a plant from Baja, California, Mexico called Verbena lilacina that um, one of the things that uh, people do like about that, and it has become very popular here in central and southern California, is that it blooms almost all year long, um, has lovely purple flowers that happen to be fragrant, adapted to our dry summer climate here, and it attracts a, quite a diverse array of butterflies. So from skippers to swallowtails to monarchs. So that is one that is popular not only for its beauty, but also for its attractiveness to butterflies. The native sunflower. Um, I mentioned that earlier. I've been delighted by how um, happy it is in our garden, but also the fact that not only do native bees um, visit the flowers when they're in bloom in late spring, early summer, but as the seeds ripen, then it provides a, a wonderful food source for goldfinches. They will just hang upside down and just um, feast away um, until they you know, get disturbed by something and fly off and then eventually return. So that's a plant that, that uh, 
that gives in multiple ways. Coast live oaks and oaks in general, you know, have a reputation of being um, fantastic habitat um, plants. Um, there's documentation that um, oak trees um, provide some type of support to over 500 different creatures of wildlife at some point during their life, whether it's a food source or nesting or shelter. And so we definitely see an awful lot of activity among the, the many oak trees here in the garden. So those are just a few, very, very few examples. I remember when I was there being really taken by the um, bat monitoring equipment that you mm -hmm. had down by, I think, by the pond area. Well, I, I know that we've documented, I think it's five species now. And I think that the reason that we are seeing, you know, that kind of activity is because of the fact that all of these plants are providing some type of a food source for insects, and then the, the bats are visiting to eat the insects. And Leela can probably fill in some more detail about that. Yeah, so the person who puts up the bat detector is Miguel Orellana. He works in um, the community science office. He's also an urban carnivore researcher um, and urban mammologist. So we've had a bat detector up for a number of years in the garden. We have one, two, three, four, five species of bats um, that have been detected. We've got the big brown bat, red bat, hoary bat, pallid bat, and Townsend big-eared bat. And one of the other things that... Uh, Again, I keep mentioning the pond. Um, the pond is a great resource for bats, not what most people would think. It's because of all the insects that live in the aquatic environment and then emerge as adults. And these flying insects are then great uh, food source for bats. And you'll often um, see bats flying over waterways around Los Angeles at dusk. And um, it's a really beautiful sight to behold. Um, and you're like, yay, you might be eating any of the mosquitoes that are flying around right now. Thank you, bats. So that was one of the things I was like, we have to have a pond. We have to have a pond. We have to have a pond. Not only is it going to add all of this biodiversity um, and habitat for these species that really rely on that aquatic environment, but uh, I've done a lot of ponding with children. And so taking kids out to the edge of the pond, giving them a net, giving them a um, even a simple tool like a plastic spoon and a ice cube tray, they can then sample for the macroinvertebrates in the pond and they get to find things like water striders and dragonfly larvae and damselfly larvae. And we don't actually have very many mosquitoes in our pond, which is fantastic. All the Arroyo Chub uh, doing their job eating, eating them. Um, but lots of other insects like mayfly larvae, um, we found some beetle larvae um, living in the pond as well. Beyond the pond, we also wanted to make sure that we added habitat value in addition to the plants. So we have bee hotels that we put up out there. And I remember working with some of our exhibit team with some old pieces of wood that um, Brian Brown, our entomologist, had in his backyard. And we drilled hundreds of holes into them and put them out. And we're so excited when we saw bees moving in. These are solitary bees. Um, not the, um, you know, um, honeybees that live in these giant uh, colonial groups. So they're much uh, less likely to sting these solitary bees. Um, and they move in and they lay their eggs inside of these holes and provision them with pollen sacs. And uh, then the baby bees hatch out and get to eat the pollen that is inside there. So that's, that's really fantastic. 
things that get provisioned with spiders are actually wasps. So we have we have areas that we let go muddy, um, and then wasps come and collect the mud from those little edges of the muddy puddles and make um, little nests on the side of the building. Um, we've also left lots of area that is like bare sand because there are ground nesting sand wasps in the group Bembix, um, which have these beautiful green iridescent eyes. You know, that's not something that uh, most gardeners maybe know about. But yeah, if you want to have these beautiful wasps, and again, these are solitary wasps, so they're not going to be out there trying to sting us humans uh, like yellow jackets are. And then added bonus for those mud daubers, you know, if you have a, a, a any kind of sort of phobia of spiders, they're, they, that's part of their life cycle. They need to provision their, their, their nests with those spiders for their babies to eat. In this fifth episode in our series focusing on the important role we and our gardens can play in supporting biodiversity in this world, we're speaking with Carol Bornstein, director, and Leela Higgins, senior manager of community science at the Nature Gardens of the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in downtown L.A. The gardens were designed and planted by Mia Layer & Associates, a firm now known as Studio MLA, in 2013 in collaboration with science and education staff at the Natural History Museum, specifically to reintroduce native habitat by way of water, rocks, trees, other plants, and soils for the native wildlife of Los Angeles to return. The resulting insect, reptile, mammal, and bird diversity making this oasis garden their home is a reminder to us all of the power we have to create habitat for all on our own patches of earth. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here. You want to know what I'm loving the very most about this conversation with Carol and Leela? It's this. We're speaking so little about pollinators. Now, that might sound like a funny thing to say, but if you've been listening to these conversations in this series, you might have picked up that my feelings are this. When we talk about habitat and biodiversity loss, It's not about one subset of life, animals we humans call pollinators. We don't need this issue reduced to a soundbite. We are fully capable of grasping both the nuance and the complexity of the damage we have done to these living systems and our capacity for helping to restore balance. And it's not about us doing this because it benefits us as humans, that the loss of pollinators will severely impact our food crops, for instance. We care and we can act based solely on the fact that it's the right thing to do. The problem we've created is not simple, and the answer is not simple. But it starts simply with starting from where we are, doing what we can, to not only change our actions and decisions, but to increase our own understanding and awareness. Garden variety everyday actions from the ground up. It is about the monarchs and the hummingbirds and the honeybees, but as Carol and Leela demonstrate, 
It's also about lizards and spiders, beetles and bats. It's about flies and sand wasps we might be preconditioned to be scared of, but which are in fact gentle and they have the most beautiful iridescent eyes and they have an important place in this web of life that we're one tiny part of. We can do this. We, you and me gardeners, we most especially can do this. Now, back to our conversation with Carol Bornstein and Leela Higgins of the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Carol Bornstein and Leela Higgins of the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in downtown L.A. You know, as home gardeners, and, and you have both sort of referenced the idea of the garden serving as demonstration for other people to see what they can do. And clearly, not everybody's going to be able to put in a big pond or plant an enormous oak or even plant a small oak that's going to become an enormous oak. If you, both of you, had sort of one to three things that you would say to listeners as to what you would love to see them do in their gardens to move in this direction, what would those what would those three things be? And let's start with you, Carol. Well, that's tough. I've thought about this a lot. Um, uh, I guess maybe the first thing I would suggest is to if you're using any kind of toxic chemicals in your garden, to just stop doing that. The statistics about the use of, of herbicides and pesticides in this country is, is very alarming. And um, in my opinion, it's, it's unnecessary. And we are managing this garden um, using organic practices, and we are not using toxic chemicals at all. And we're not using synthetic fertilizers either. Um, so I would encourage people to just um, abandon those practices um, because that is killing, um, both beneficial as well as um, the occasional pests that might be visiting your garden, and allow um, natural um, natural predators to help come and provide some kind of ecological balance in whatever size garden you might have. So that I think that might be my first suggestion. Um, Certainly incorporating some California native plants into your garden if you don't already. Um, and if your space is really, really limited, I would concentrate on those that are as local as possible to your area um, with the expectation that those would ideally be the best adapted to your site. Um, that isn't always the case, but um, more likely than not, they would they would hopefully be better adapted than something from tr su super far away. As many of your listeners know, California is an incredibly diverse state with over 6,000 species of native plants, and not all of those are going to grow well in your immediate area. So try to narrow your scope. Reducing chemicals, using native plants. Um, regardless of the size of your garden, try to incorporate different layers of vegetation so that you're providing habitat for as wide an array of, of wildlife as possible. And by that, I mean plants that cover the ground, 
and you know, kind of a blanket on the ground, mid-story as well as some type of canopy because different um, species occupy all of those different zones. And that not only adds to the visual interest of your garden, but it, it definitely will also nurture other forms of life to a, a appreciable extent. So, oh, I have to add one more, and that is some type of a water supply, even if it's just a tiny little dripping um, bird bath type of a setup. Um, at that, because everything needs water um, to some degree, and it doesn't have to be exuberant or ex expansive. But, you know, just a little bit will go a long way to supporting life. Yeah. What about you, Leela? Okay. Get rid of your lawns as much as you possibly can, especially in Southern California. Um, habitat value, basically zero. I'm not saying don't have any lawn. I totally see them as a, a great place for children and, and dogs to maybe play or laying down on for a picnic or taking a nap in. I'm for all those things, but as much as possible, um, you know, frequently drive by and you see people not using their lawns for 99% of the, the time. So get rid of as much lawn as you possibly feel like you can. Outdoor cats are really destructive. Um, I love cats. I love um, my friend's cats, but they, they kill so much wildlife. Um, lizards, birds insects even. And I know that's really hard for some people to hear, but uh, that you can have your cat be an indoor cat. You can make an outdoor cat run. Um, one of the women that I uh, do a lot of work with, who's a huge advocate for wildlife here in LA, Susan Gottlieb, she has a lovely, nice, big cat run outside. Um, and so, and she has hundreds and hundreds of hummingbirds that visit her house, but that cat run allows the cats to be outside and the birds to be safe. And then lastly, I know Carol mentioned the no pesticides. I'm going to get really specific on one kind of pesticide, um, no rodenticides. Any rat poison that is being put out, they can be really destructive going up the food chain, mm -hmm. getting all the way even to in um, our amazing mountain lion, P22. He was suffering from mange, um, had to be captured and uh, administered uh, medicine, and that's that's directly linked to, to rodenticides. And so that's something that we're really trying to fight against here in Los Angeles right now and getting that to be something that is adopted uh, across the city and hopefully across the county and hopefully um, other cities and counties will um, follow suit. Is there anything else you would like to add? And I, I want to remind listeners that uh, there's this amazing opportunity coming up. The City Nature Challenge is going to be April 27th through the 29th for observation period, get your smartphones and digital cameras out, take pictures of any plant or animal in any city that's participating. And that's a project that I helped to start. I co-founded with someone from the California Academy of Sciences. And it's a competition between, it was originally four years ago, LA versus San Francisco, which city can find the most nature. And there's 140 cities around the world, lots of cities in the Western United States, LA and San Francisco. We have a long-standing rivalry. Help us beat San Francisco. <laughs> I just remembered one other thing of our new book, Wild, Wild LA. LA. Yeah. I'm one of the co-authors. Carol was um, one of our scientific advisors. Um, we have a whole, uh, we have 25 field trips around LA and the nature gardens is one of them. So um, fun. Okay. Carol, is there anything you would like to add? Um, in terms of the 
the plant and wildlife connection. Two of the plants that I didn't mention at all that are really kind of should be at the top of the list for providing habitat are the buckwheats, the areogonums, and baccarus. So buckwheats and baccarus have been huge stars in terms of the, the, the insect diversity that they support. How many different species of buckwheats do you have in the garden? And are there lists of plant and plant species that you have in the garden up online under on the website? We don't have it online. I do have a plant um, database, and um, you know it, we share it with people who you know express an interest in it, but it's not live. I can roughly say that we have probably seven or eight species of buckwheats in the garden. i'm I'm really glad you mentioned both of those because they are such, for one thing, great season extenders. We are very close to our time. So I think I will move to is there is there anything else? you would like to add, maybe speaking personally to some moment of beauty or engagement in the garden um, that you could share with visitors about, you know, not just the the whys, but um, not just the like you shoulds, but the um, this is why it's so powerful to you personally. Well, I could... I could say that for me, the time that I spend not only in this garden but in my own garden brings me joy just by virtue of seeing the beauty that uh, plants that are thriving um, provides and the support that they also provide, the the dynamic between the plants and the wildlife um, is just a constant source of um, well, inspiration, beauty, and pleasure—it's—it's um, it's part of the fabric of you know of our landscape. And I—I I don't know how I came to appreciate that exactly. Um, I—I've been gardening since I was a child, but I don't really think I paid that much attention to um, the wildlife. It was more the plants initially, and over time, I've come to appreciate the connection. Uh, between all of these different living things and how they how they change over time. To me, that is, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of being a gardener. Um, and the happy surprises when something does what you don't expect it to do, and that can be a, you know, a wonderful thing in and of itself. Um, the um, problem-solving aspect of being a gardener, realizing that not everything is going to work the way you want, that there are going to be failures, but there'll also be a lot of successes. Um, the willingness to, you know, the willingness to fail and to to try something new, and it's always changing. That's what I love about what I do. That it's it's unpredictable, and I really appreciate and value that very highly. What about you, Leela? So for me, it's really getting to see people in this space engaging. Um, as the manager of the community science program, like getting right before this um, interview, I went on to iNaturalist, which is the platform we use to help document nature in this garden space. And I was like, how many species um, and observations have been found and documented by people who visit the museum and some of those people are coming to our programs 
Some of those people are kids in, you know, some of our uh, kind of like nature clubs, but some of them are just general visitors who we maybe don't even get a personal interaction with. Um, and so I looked that up and we had over 272 people um, submitted 3,797 observations, which represents 528 species in that garden space. Um, and so seeing the power of that data set that has been collectively created by many, most of those people are not scientists. They're not, um, they don't have a undergraduate degree or a master's or a PhD in science, um, but they are out there and they care enough to take a photo and they care enough to, to submit it. And, and so we get to see that data and then get a better understanding of, of what is here in this garden space. And that's really powerful to me. But then having those personal interactions in this space, walking out, even if I'm just really rushed and walking to a meeting and I walk through the space and see a group of school, school children kind of running and giant smiles on their faces. And then when the they realize that they're allowed to kind of put their hands in the pond and feel that pond water, and the teacher's like, yeah, okay, go ahead. And just like this exuberant joy on those faces. That's what feeds me and feeds my soul and shows the true power of this space. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. It has been a great pleasure to speak to you both and learn even more about those powerful gardens. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be a part of this series. Yes, thank you. Carol Bornstein is a California native plant expert and the director of the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Leela Higgins is an entomologist, educator, and senior manager of community science at the Natural History Museum. With heart data collected over the last seven years and huge hearts for this work, Carol and Leela are just two people in a large team working to increase support and learn from the nature gardens and the habitat they provide. They provide that habitat to us all, humans and other wildlife. For more information on the nature gardens, please see the museum's website at nhm.org, where you can follow the data collections and live cams that Carol and Leela were telling us about placed out in the gardens. You can also check out their new book, co-authored by Leela, on which Carol served as science editor. It's called Wild L.A., exploring the amazing nature in and around Los Angeles. As they say, alligator lizards and free-flying parakeets are just the beginning. While this was meant to be the fifth and final episode in our deep dive series into our gardens as important and sustaining habitats for the wildlife of our native areas, and we gardeners as important stewards of biodiversity, I just couldn't help myself. I have extended the exploration to one more episode because it fits in so beautifully. You might know of the Irish plantswoman and garden designer Mary Reynolds from the movie Dare to be Wild, of which her surprising gold medal winning garden design at the Chelsea Flower Show and her passion for nature and gardens is the focus. Or you might know her as the author of The Garden Awakening. 
In either event, I think you will really enjoy hearing her garden life journey and her concept for gardens as arcs of hope for wildlife the globe over. Join us next week for that. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from the inspiring nature gardens in Los Angeles, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.